This is our uh, last Sunday school on uh, Christology. Uh, really thankful for some of y'all that have come, and uh, especially those of you who ask good questions. So uh, please feel free to do that. Um, Christology is the study of the person and work of Christ. Uh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, God is three persons, one essence, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we've been looking particularly at the Son of God. And uh, we looked at, just a very quick review, we started in eternity past and saw how God the Son is the Word. So he reveals to us what God is like. He is everything that God wants to say to us. So that there is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Then we saw that God is the eternal Son. So when we look at, if you want to get, if you want to have it right, if you want to be orthodox and know who God is, start with the Son. You'll see that God is a Father who loves the Son by the Spirit. That's who God is. That is his, that's his definition. That's, that's how he relates to himself. And then we spent three weeks looking at how 2,000 years ago, God the Son took on human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. It's called the Incarnation. So that, uh, so that God the Son, Jesus, the person of Jesus, is truly God, truly man, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. And then last week we looked at how <clears throat> he was buried and then he was resurrected. And where Jesus is right now is ascended. His body, his earthly body, really ascends into heaven, which is not up there. It's God's space that we don't have the eyes to see, but interacts with this world. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, so that, I can't remember who said this, we call him, the dust of earth is on the throne of heaven. So where is Jesus right now? The person of Jesus is ascended in heaven, ruling and reigning as king. He's our priest, he's our prophet, uh, but in a real human body that has been resurrected and glorified. So let me, let me pray real quick. Father, um, yeah, there's, there would be nothing better, uh, no matter where we find ourselves, uh, for, uh, as Paul prays, for the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our heart uh, so that we could see Jesus. Uh, so would you do that uh, this morning in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, uh, I asked this question um, at men's luncheon a few weeks ago, so sorry if you were there, but um, and I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who asked this one time. He said, okay, I, I'm going to give you an option, and you can, have one of the, one, each, you can have one of these options. Which one do you want? The first option is this, that this morning, right now, Jesus, as he was 2,000 years ago in the flesh, walks into this room and teaches this Sunday school. That'd be pretty awesome, right? That's option one. Option two is me standing behind this podium, fumbling through, making some lame jokes, but by the invisible power of the Holy Spirit working through me, teaching, teaching the word in Sunday school, which would you rather have? I'll tell you, I would rather have option one, personally. Because <laughs> I would think, like, I would love to see, you know, Jesus' eyes, the way they looked at me. I'd love to hear his voice and all that kind of stuff. However, however, look what John says, and I mean, Jesus says in John 16, this is, he's preparing his disciples for when he's going to die resurrected and ascended and leave his, leave his disciples, his physical body's gonna leave. And here's what he says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus just said it is to our advantage for him to ascend into heaven so as to send the Spirit. Again, this is just hard for me to believe, okay? It has nothing to do with me. 
by the way. But Jesus is saying that his power, presence, and grace in the person of Jesus will somehow be better as he has ascended and sends the Spirit and works through that than when he was walking around on earth. How can that be? Because that's how we're going to talk about, we're going to kind of end, is that the, where is Christ now? Yes, he is in heaven. Of course, his divinity is everywhere. But also you realize that Scripture says, because the Holy Spirit has come, Christ is also in you and being manifested through you because you are his body. And that is kind of unbelievable. And so uh, we're going to mainly talk about that. So the ascended Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit is actually better than when he was walking around 2,000 years ago because, first of all, it actually means a closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus than even the disciples had when they were just walking around with the incarnate Jesus. Look what he says again. This is John 14. He says, in that day, he's talking about again after his, after his death, resurrection, ascension, you will know that I am in my Father, and you and me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Uh, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How's that going to happen? Judas, not scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How in the world are you going to show yourself to us? And look what he says. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says, here's how I'm going to manifest myself to you in an incredible ways. My Father and I are going to make our home in you. Right? And then Colossians says, this is Paul writing. This is to them, talking about Gentiles. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where is Christ now? Yes, he is seated on high, but then he sends his spirit. And all those who have trusted in Christ have the spirit dwelling in it, which is called the spirit of Christ, third person of the Trinity. It's the spirit of Christ that it brings a new, close, intimate relationship with Jesus that nobody else had before. Okay, remember what we said at the very beginning, that when I look at Jesus, I see that God is a father who loves the son by the spirit. Realize what this is saying if you're a Christian, that the spirit is dwelling, the spirit of Christ is dwelling in you, which means, do you know what you are? You are now one who the father loves as a son by the spirit. That is who you are. A Christian has, has the spirit of Christ in them and are united to Christ so that now your definition is love by the Father, by the Spirit. You have been caught up into the same love that Christ has experienced before the foundations of the world. That's how intimate, that's how close. That's why Romans 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Because the spirit that you receive, it does not make us slaves, that means we'd still live in fear. It, make, it brings us the spirit of adoption that makes you cry out, Abba, Father, the same thing that Jesus called uh, God his Father. So Michael Reeves says this, believers receive the very spirit of the Son and wakes us up to, to share the holy taste of the Son. I begin to cry out to God like I've never cried out before. I call him my Abba, my dear Father. The spirit of adoption brings me to share the Son's own affection for his Father, and for the first time, I fulfill what I was made for, that I love the Lord my God. Again, Christianity is not just bringing something abstract called forgiveness. Christianity brings you Christ. 
It's all about him. And when you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you now start to have the same affections that Christ has, which is love and trust of the Father. And you receive the same thing that Christ receives, which is the love and the delight of the Father. Because Christ is in you and you are in Christ. That, again, is just astounding. It, it, he is bringing, that is what he is bringing you. So intimate, uh, so close uh, as Christ comes. So there's a real sense, you can, you can follow the person of Christ, and I'm gonna spend long on this, and you can watch the story of scriptures, him getting closer and closer. Adam and Eve walk with God, with God in the cool of the day, and we remember we've said every visible manifestation of God uh, in the Old Testament is, is, is probably Christ. And then sin happens, separation. And ever since then, you'll, you'll realize God is coming closer and closer. He shows up in a, in, in, a, in, a, you know, in a pillar of fire, and then he shows up in a temple, gets closer, and he gets getting closer still. And then he shows up in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and you think he can't get any closer. And then he dies, resurrects his sins, and sends the Spirit. So now he's getting even closer. He's inside of me. And actually, Revelation ends where he is even closer still. He's not only in us, he's all around us, and he's dwelling in uh, visible light and purity. The message of the Bible is God, nothing is going to prevent God from getting as close to you as possible because he loves you that much. That's what Jesus is up to. So it, it promises a more close, intimate relationship with him. Second of all, the ascended uh, Christ, I know this is a lot of words on one page, but um, it all, Jesus' ascension, ascending of the spirit means that the manifestation of Christ is also in and through you because you are now his body. So where is Christ's body? Two answers. On the throne of this universe. And also, if you're a believer, you are Christ's body. Because Christ is in you. Right? So, again, it walks through. I won't read this all. Ephesians 1 walks through how uh, by the power of Christ, who's dead, who's resurrected. Now, he's, look at um, about four lines up. He's seated with him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's talking about the ascension. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, John Calvin says this, the design of the gospel is that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into his body. So that means that one of the primary ways that people interact with the presence of Christ in this world is through his believers because Christ is in you and you and I are his body. Now, that's both convicting and fascinating, but that, that, like, that just, that makes everything holy. Like that really does, right? Paul tells us to welcome one another with a holy kiss. I know we don't, we don't do that kiss anymore, right? That was, that was an ancient thing. But he really is saying, if you're a Christian, you should welcome one another. Why? Because you're the body of Christ. And Jesus welcomes his people into his arms. Jesus is glad to see you, no matter what your week has looked like. Not because we're good, not because we're worthy, but because of who he is. So when you welcome someone, someone who feels like they don't belong, that is the welcome of Jesus coming through you because you're the body of Christ. You're, like, that's why Jesus can say, um, he tells this parable and 
he shows people in time, they say, you know, when did we give you water? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you when you were naked? And you know what Jesus says? He says, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, so you did to me. <laughs> Jesus is saying, well, guess where I am? I'm, <laughs> I am in Christians who are poor and need shelter and need water. And when you gave water to them, it was as if you were giving it to me because I am in them. So he even, not only are you displaying as the body of Christ what Jesus is like, doing that to other Christians, it is doing it in a real sense to Christ and he receives it. And as we do that to non-Christians, we're calling them to receive the beauties of Jesus. And so again, you, there are a thousand applications. We start thinking about, okay, so the body of Christ in a real sense is manifested among his believers. Um, and that's both awesome and convicting because there's a lot of times we do not manifest Jesus very well. Um, that also means this, that if you are the body of Christ, oh man, that is way too small. I'm sorry. Okay, here's what I'm gonna tell you, all right? Dang. Uh, this is Revelation 12. Revelation 12, if you go read it, is a, it seems like a wild chapter, okay? But what it is doing is, <laughs> Revelation is like a picture book, okay? And Revelation 12, through powerful images, gives you the history of the world, okay? And you've got this dragon who is Satan. You've got this woman that represents God's people and Mary. And then you've got a son, the only one who said it's not a sign, which means the son is, is the real thing, and it's Jesus, all right? And so you see this great battle happen where the, where the dragon tries to destroy uh, the woman and tries to destroy the son and prevent the son's birth. That's all about Jesus. But he can't, he can't destroy the son and right, death, resurrection. And then the son, and the, and, and, uh, the son goes away. So then the picture that you get in verse uh, 13 is the dragon has been thrown down to earth. That is Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Satan has been defeated. And the woman is given two wings of great eagles that she may fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished from time, times, and, and half a time. And then the serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to try to sweep her away with a flood. That is where we are in history, okay? That Satan has been thrown down. The woman is God's people. We are in the wilderness. And because Christ is in you and you're the body of Christ, Satan cannot touch Christ anymore. Christ has defeated him. He's weakened. So guess what Satan has turned his attention to? you and me. Because when he looks at you and me, it reminds him of Christ, because Christ is in you. And that's, that's the picture. We're in the wilderness when this great struggle and Satan is unleashing this flood of just wrathful fury at, a, at this woman, but the woman is being nour nourished and cared for. And so where are we in history because Christ is in you, because Satan cannot touch Christ anymore, he is unleashing a, a last-ditch effort of, of, of wrath towards you. And so Revelation 12 really is saying that one of the primary reasons life is so hard and suffering is so prevalent and the reason that we're so tempted to despair and feel beat down, even as a Christian, is because actually Satan has been defeated and thrown down. The reason struggle and hardship is real is actually because Satan has lost. And you say that doesn't make any sense. But 1 Peter says, be watchful because your adversary prowl, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
Have you ever seen a lion hunt? A lion does not roar when he hunts. A lion is stealth. He, he sneaks up on things. A lion roars when he's been mortally wounded. That is what has happened. He got mortally wounded at the cross. He's been defeated, but he refuses to surrender. This is what evil does, right? Apparently, towards the end of uh, World War II, one of Hitler's generals advised Hitler to make peace since the Allies have clearly won. And so Hitler gave up, right? No. Hitler fired that general, and he kept fighting until the last bullet because that's what evil does. And because Satan has been defeated, he is going to keep unleashing a river of lies and violence and threat until he is finally vanquished forever. And so our place in this story is we are Christ's body that is receiving the fury of Satan. And I know that sounds strange because we're sitting here in this beautiful building on a, you know, on a cool morning, and, but maybe you're waiting a baseball game. But John is saying, look, look behind the veil. The picture is we are actually in a desert being assaulted by Satan and protected and nourished by the Lord himself. And I think it's supposed to wake us up. And because one of Satan's tools, and I'll be quick here, one of Satan's tools to wreak havoc is fear. That's why his color is red. It's the color of violence. He always seeks to devour. And he'll try to intimidate us because you look like Jesus. He'll try to, uh, he'll try to bring fear and suffering and death to keep you from following the risen victorious Jesus because he cannot defeat Jesus and he can't change the outcome. So yes, that really does mean that throughout global history and, and even today, there's threats of actual death and execution if people follow Christ. It's still going on today because that's his body. But even in Oxford, even in Oxford, there, Satan will intimidate you with fear because you're his body. He will use fear to try to keep us from trusting and obeying him. He will, make it seem, he will make it seem like if you follow Jesus, you're going to lose. That's the only power he has because you cannot lose. Jesus is one. He'll make it feel that way. So it can look like this. If you've had uh, real evil done to you, um, let's, man, let's say uh, that um, there's abuse going on in your life right now. Here's the way fear and intimidation works. Satan will say, if you tell anybody, nobody's going to believe you. If you tell someone, no one will believe you and it'll only get worse. So don't bring it into the light. That's how it works. And that fear becomes so overwhelming uh, that you'd rather, I don't know, stay in an abusive marriage or whatever than tell. Uh, if you carve a different path in Oxford and live not for this world, not for comfort and pleasure or whatever, and say no and trust Jesus by sacrificial love, saying, maybe even say no to opportunities to climb up the ladder by being forgiven and kind and compassionate, Satan is saying, if you live that way, you will miss out. You will miss out. You can't be ordinary. You've got to be extraordinary. You've got to keep climbing up the ladder, and he will use fear. And you could go on and on, but he just uses fear. He doesn't have power over you, but he can bring fear because you're his body. And the key is to keep seeing the, the, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Christ, that you're united with him. Nothing can change that, and he is in you. And nothing can change that either. That perhaps the reason for the suffering and fear in your life is because you remind Satan so much of Jesus.
So Tim Keller um, has cancer right now, and he, everybody keeps wondering, you know, how much longer he's going to live. He's on all this, these kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, trial cancers, uh, trial, um, trial medication. And uh, he did this interview with The Atlantic, uh, and here's what he said, talking about his, his cancer and walking through all this stuff. He said, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, that's his wife, and I've discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex, and conversation, actually bring more joy than ever. As God's reality dawns more on my heart slowly and painfully through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It's only as I've become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good, astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I can sincerely say, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, that I've never been happier in my life and I've never had more days filled with comfort. I don't know what to do with that, I'll be honest. That, that sounds like pie-in-the-sky Christianity unattainable to me, but I believe it from him. He's saying as he's walked through suffering, He's become more heavenly-minded so that he actually enjoys this world more before than he did previously. And you realize, like, Satan can't do anything about that. He can't. He's lost. Third, so uh, Christ in you, you being his body, means that Satan uh, fights against you. But it also means this. 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign, you realize this is a lot like uh, Ephesians, until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the picture now is that Christ in his body is in heaven on the throne with all things under his feet and he will reign until all those things come under his feet. What does that mean under his feet? Okay, this is me pulling from Ricky Jones. You can actually see this in the story in Joshua. What would happen is when a king would conquer another king, They would bring that king, right, to the king that had conquered. They would literally put his throat under the heel. And and they would tell him to to kiss the foot. This is your last chance. If you don't kiss the foot, then the heel comes down on your neck and you're dead. So you either pledge allegiance to the king or you're destroyed. That's the image, is that Jesus is on the throne. Everything is being brought under his foot, under, under his lordship. And he is going to reign until every single enemy is finally under his foot, either in uh, submission and, 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 and love of him as king or will finally be put away forever. And, I, and again, I hear that. Like, okay, he's reigning until all the enemies are put under his feet. Why has it taken Jesus so long? It's been 2,000 years of suffering and darkness and sin things still being brought under his feet? And I don't know all the answers, but I will say this. You realize that if Jesus had had brought all things under his feet, had eradicated all sin and darkness forever a thousand years ago, you do realize you and I wouldn't exist. And so the reason, one of the reasons that he's going slowly is because he does not have all of his people with him yet. He's still bringing it in. And here's what's amazing, because Christ is in you One of the primary ways that he is bringing things under his feet in submission, do you know what it is? It is through you and me. That his reign is going to the ends of the earth through his body, which is you and me. And I would just challenge you that that's supposed to change the way that we view life. 
How do we live as Christ's body on earth bringing all, all Christ's enemies under his feet? Well, the best way is loving enemies. If we love enemies, people who, are, people who hate us, people who are different than us, people who are not one of Christ, if you love him, the greatest submission is they become Christians and they come under his feet immediately. And they know that the one who, who, who has their feet over them is not an evil taskmaster. He's a loving king who forgives and blesses. But what's another enemy? Another enemy is death. This really is saying we're supposed to work to bring death under, under Christ's feet, as well as oppression, the beast, and sin, and false ideologies, and all this kind of stuff. And we do. We fight against death. I, I don't know if we think about this, but like, there's a, there's a promise, again, this is all from Ricky, there's a promise in Isaiah 65 where it says, um, basically, the world will get to a place where even a man who dies at 100 is accursed. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you this. I think the average age of death like two centuries ago was like 40-something. And now it's been pushed back to like 70, 80. Do you know why that's happening? It's not only this, but some of it is it's because Christians are in the world. You realize that hospitals were a Christian invention. Like if something horrible happened to you right now, you know where you'd be taken? Baptist hospital. Why is it called Baptist? Because Christians were those who realized that God cares about the body and that death is not the way things are supposed to be, and so they've always fought against it. Now, the sting has been taken out, so we don't hold on to it like it's end-all, be-all, but yes, like we are bringing that under his feet. The same with oppression. Look, I, I realize I step on... Um, I'll say it. I realize that this, this, is, this is hard. It's complicated. I'm not saying that, but... If you were born in the United States, if you're a part of this church, your history is an American Southern evangelical, okay? And there's some awesome things about that. One of the bad things about that is, is it was kind of formed at the same time that slavery was exploding, okay? And that created some tension. And some, something that came out of that was it's what we've called the spirituality of the church, where we said, well, Racism and slavery and stuff will always be around, so our job is just to preach the gospel and not, and, and not, and not move into that, okay? That's a lie. In the same way that we're supposed to bring death under Christ's feet and everything else, we're supposed to work against oppression because Christ is bringing that under his feet as well. That, that's what I mean, where Jesus is king and we are his body and he's bringing all things under his feet. That is also why if, you're his, if, if me and you are his body, James says, it's just so crazy. It says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Look, Christ is your only priest. We confess our sins to Christ. He has already forgiven us. We're clean. But James is actually saying there is a healing that happens horizontally as you will confess your sins to one another. Why? Because Christ is in you and the presence of Christ is in you. I'm not saying that that you're the one who brings me forgiveness. Christ has, but he really is saying that if I will confess things that I've done or where I am to you, an actual person in front of me, a Christian, and you respond with love and embrace and forgiveness, that frees and heals me in a way that it doesn't feel abstract anymore. And guys, we just live in the South where we all hide our stuff. And we are, we are that means we are... <laughs> 
We're not availing ourselves of the healing of Christ because you and I are Christ's body. This also is, this is, why, this is where the Lord's Supper, I think, will make on, take on a little, little more, uh, right? Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. Our tradition, it is still bread. It doesn't magically change into Christ's body, okay? It's still wine. But the Spirit brings Christ's presence as you eat those things, okay? So as you take communion, if you're a believer, look what it's saying. It is saying, take Christ into you. He is in you. Keep feeding on this reality. Nourish that in you. And it means we are all nourished by the same thing. Um, You can go look this guy up, Chris Crime. Uh, Chris Kine, sorry, Seattle, 20 years ago, at a Mardi Gras parade, it got out of hand, a mob formed, and Chris died. He went to help a lady. He got attacked. He dies. A man that was watching that on TV actually prays. Chris, right, Chris doesn't make it. About 30 minutes later, that man who's watching TV and praying, his phone rings, and his wife, he says, oh my gosh, there are lungs that are now available. He, he, he was looking for, he, he was on the organ transplant list. Chris's lungs, he became an organ donor, went into this man who had been praying for him. Months later, Chris's mom throws a dinner party for all of the recipients of Chris's organs. And it was like six of them, a pancreas, lungs, a heart, a liver. And the mom would walk up and actually like listen to the heartbeat of her son, right, in this other man. And all of a sudden, there's this amazing celebration of different people, different places, different stories. But what were they doing? They were all united by one death. And that, I know this sounds weird, and that person was in them. And so they were united. That is what the Lord's Supper is like. That's why it says that we're not to take it if we're not okay with one another. Because we are united. It is a, it is a feast where we all have the same thing in us, the, de- the death and life of Christ. That's supposed to bring down all other barriers. Um, I'm going to leave time for questions. I'm, so I'm going to say two quick things. That also means because Christ is in you, now and for, look at this quote by Michael, and for eternity, becoming more like Christ means becoming more human, not less. Creating the image of God, we will be what we were meant to be, untriveled, undent, and unfurled. Because Christ is in you. Look, there, there's a lot of definitions you give of sin. One, one thing that sin does is it dehumanizes us. It corrupts us so that we're not who God has made us to be. But Jesus, right, is not just truly God. He's also truly man. He's who we're supposed to be. And so as Christ in you works and repentance and faith and slowly makes you more like Jesus, he actually is making you more human. Everybody's made in the image of a God, okay, but he's making you function as he has made you to function. Like, what is the answer to addiction? Yes, okay. People, like, if you have any friends who are in addiction, they'll tell you this. You could stop drinking and still be a dry drunk because you're empty on the inside. Something more is needed. Your humanity restored by Christ in you. He will make you a full human, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That he is making you like Jesus. That is what he's doing, the full human. And lastly, and all in here, the final next manifestation of Christ that we will see is when he returns like a white horse in Revelation, on a white horse in Revelation 19. He has blood. I would actually argue it's, own, it's his own blood that's already been given because the war is over when he comes. And you see him coming, and he is coming for his bride, which is the church. And he's getting rid of all lust and all death, anything that comes between he and his bride. 
and we will see him with real eyes and with glorified bodies and we'll see the glorified Jesus coming to be with us and us with him forever and finally it's all over. Everything is under his feet and we live for eternity with him. So the final manifestation of Christ, it means, y'all heard me say this before, it really does mean that all the fairy tales are true. You do realize this. It's okay to tell your daughters to long for a white knight to come and rescue them because it's true. There is one that is coming to rescue us as, as princesses who have, been, who have been enslaved and captivated by darkness. And he will wake us with his kiss. There is, y'all know I love hearing about it, there is a boy who died and came back to bring, to bring life to people. There it really is, take Rapunzel, there really is a princess who is trapped in a tower by an evil one and a prince comes and finds him and sets him free. All the fairy tales are true because the presence of Jesus is real and he's coming back and it'll be manifested forever so he can be with us. And so I'll end with this. This is the end of, uh, this is towards the end of, um, and we'll have four minutes for questions. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the lion, is the Christ figure. He has died and he's come back to life thus unearthing the deep magic they didn't know about and starting to heal. And so when, when they see Aslan for the first time, they're sobbing and weeping, and they turn, and Lucy says, aren't you dead, dear Aslan? And Susan says, you're not, you're not a, right, she's thinking he's a ghost. And Aslan stoops his head and licked her forehead, and the warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Lucy cried these wonderful words, oh, you're real, you're real, oh, dear Aslan, you're real. And what happened is all the weeping turned into dancing and rejoicing in a party, and that is the presence of Christ. When he returns, all these doubts, all this confusion will say, oh, you're real. You're really real and you're here. And it'll turn all the death, all the sadness, all the sin into a party that'll never end. So that is uh, our, our kind of walk through Christology. We got a few minutes for questions. Anything kind of come out of that? Sorry, I, I went fast this morning. Anything? I'm with me, no questions. It means you're bored or we need to, our, our things were clear. I'll choose, I'll choose clear. We'll choose clarity. All right, let me pray for us then. Father, uh, man, help us to be like uh, Lucy and Susan and say you're real. Uh, you're real enough to come into our pain. You're real enough to come into our sorrow. Uh, you're real enough to come into our sin uh, and to remake us, uh, to heal us. And one day, all things are gonna be under your feet. Uh, and I pray that we would now, if we never have, come into submission to that, repent and see that you're a good king. But also live, uh, live as one who Christ is in us, displaying the glories and the beauties of Jesus, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Jesus, uh, and self-control. For we, we'd love if Christ's presence as a body looked more like Jesus this week than it did last week. So would you do that? In your son's name I pray, amen.